And so if you're willing and able, would you stand with me as I read from Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, and we'll read down through verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. We've talked over the last several weeks about what are the challenges to becoming the church that the Lord has called us to be. What are the barriers to community? We've talked about how to affirm one another's strengths, how to affirm each other's equal importance, how to share one another's burdens together, how to share our stuff how to practice hospitality, how we ought to be marked by humility, and how last week we looked at how we are to help restore one another, knowing that we ourselves also need to be restored. And this week, we come to learn how to serve one another through forgiveness and reconciliation. What is biblical forgiveness? That's the question that we're after today. And we're going to look at it from God's perspective, and we're going to look at it from our perspective. What is biblical forgiveness from God's perspective and from our perspective? Let's look at the text together. Forgiveness from God's perspective. Listen, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through verse 13 is the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus is talking to scribes and Pharisees, and he is driving the entire conversation to this point because they are hard-hearted people who are unable to forgive anybody else their own peccadilloes or their small sins. And Jesus says, but oh, the Father is willing to forgive you of great sins if you'll only look to him. But they wouldn't do it. And so he brings them to the climax of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's teaching his disciples, and just before He transitions to go down the hill. Jesus, I can almost imagine in a wry smile, looks back at his his disciples and looks down at the Pharisee and he says, oh, by the way, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, Jesus uses a very common word for forgive here. It's the word in Greek, aphemi. It's used 147 times in the New Testament. 127 times alone it's used in the gospel. And only 45 of those times it refers to forgiveness. It has a broad definition to forgive. It's the same word that is used of Peter and Andrew in Matthew chapter 4 when they leave their nets. They forgive their nets. They leave them. They abandon them. Same word. As it relates to forgiveness, this word in Greek means to release somebody from moral obligation, to release them from the consequences that are due to their fault, 
to remit, to cancel, or to pardon. And also in this text, if you keep your eyes on it, Jesus uses the word for trespasses, which is the same word that we saw last week. It is the Greek word paroptomai, which comes from the Greek word pepto, uh, uh, peptos, which is like a slip or a fall. You know, it's like Jesus will forgive you your little slips. The word he uses in the Sermon on the Mount is a much stronger word for sin when he uses the word debts. It is a weighty debt. But here he says, if you forgive your friends, your, those who sin against you, their little slips, your Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive them, even those slips, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. This text begs some really important questions if, we're, uh, if you're like me when you first read it. Here's the question. Does this verse in verse 14 and 15, does this mean that we have to forgive others in order to be forgiven, and therefore that our salvation is based upon works? If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That looks like a work, doesn't it? If you don't forgive them, He's not going to forgive you. Pretty simple logic. Is it a work? Of course not. And we know that because of passages later in the New Testament like Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, It's by grace that you've been saved. It is not by works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. To say that you're saved by works cuts across hundreds of other passages in the New Testament and the Old. And so therefore, let's think again about what this verse might mean. Does it mean that not forgiving others is the unpardonable sin? And if we don't forgive everyone all the wrongs done to us, then we won't be able to be saved or that we will lose our salvation. Again, the answer is no. Because God himself doesn't forgive everyone, does he? Or else faith and repentance wouldn't be necessary. But we know that the jailer in Acts asked Peter and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Peter and Silas said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. God forgives conditionally upon faith and repentance. I'm going to say that again. God forgives conditionally upon faith and repentance. Does God the Father forgive everyone? Well, of course not. We would believe in universalism. There would be no need for us to be here because God would forgive us all. But we know that the gospel is the good news that Christ has accomplished for us what we could not accomplish. And our response is to admit that we're sinners, to believe in His finished work, and to walk in repentance to Him. That is how you're saved. It is not a work. It is by the grace of God that you believe. So, what does this verse mean? The fundamental principle of this verse is simply teaching this. And this is Jesus' point to the Pharisees and to the disciples. That we are to forgive like God forgives. We are to forgive like God forgives. Now, stay with me because that is not how you forgive. And that is not how I forgive. Let me give you a definition of forgiveness from a great book called Unpacking Forgiveness that I commend to you. If any of you are struggling with 
working through forgiveness because of a deep wound in your past. Unpacking forgiveness by a man named Chris Bruin is a fanta- bronze rather is a fantastic book. This is how he defines forgiveness, and I want to say it verbatim for how he gives it to us. Please listen. God's forgiveness is a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. I'll say it again. God's forgiveness is a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they who are reconciled to him, so that they are reconciled to him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. God's forgiveness to us is gracious, in other words, that he forgives us graciously, that his offer to us is free, but it's not without cost. The price, of course, was the most costly thing in the universe, the cost of his son's own blood. God's forgiveness to us is a commitment that when God forgives us, he makes a commitment that we are pardoned from our sin and that it is no longer counted against us. He is committed to us. It is gracious and it is a commitment. Third, God's forgiveness lays the groundwork for and begins the process for reconciliation. When God forgives, our relationship with Him is restored. There is no place in Scripture where God forgives and a relationship is not also restored. Lastly, not all consequences are immediately eliminated. God disciplines his children as a father disciplines uh, his children. Proverbs 3 says, For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. It's gracious. It's a commitment. It's conditional. It's not, it's, it builds toward reconciliation. It's not without its consequences. That's God's kind of forgiveness. Are you forgiven? Do you know that kind of forgiveness, friends? The good news of the Bible is that it is the good news that we can be forgiven no matter what we've done in the past. No matter what we have done in the past. And although some of the consequences of your sin will not disappear as soon as you trust in Christ, nevertheless, the Father commits Himself to you because of the work of the Son. Are you reconciled with your Heavenly Father? If that is forgiveness from God's perspective, then what is forgiveness from man's perspective? What about other people that we are to forgive? The Bible assumes that we're going to have conflict with one another. It is part and parcel of being human. The session uh, last spring went on a retreat together, and we were working through uh, what are the dysfunctions of a team. And one of the dysfunctions of a really well-oiled, efficiently working, capable, deeply trusting in one another kind of team is that there is a lack of conflict. So to put it positively, a good team has healthy conflict. And there is, in almost every one of your relationships, you can think of a spectrum. And you have, on one hand, you have bad conflict, where you're always at each other's throats, and you're always, by your pride, puffing out your chest to each other. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have what's called false harmony, where you're pretending to have all of your 
ducks in a row, and you're pretending to really be on the same page, but you're not. And right in the middle, we've learned, is where healthy conflict lies. And the trick of any team is to actually bump right up against healthy conflict, so much so that they do have conflict regularly. And sometimes you even step over the line, whether by your indifference and you step over the line toward false harmony or by your pride and you step over the line toward bad conflict. And when a team functions effectively, then you're going to cross over. And therefore, you have to be able to forgive and repent and reconcile together and do it quickly. But that's a sign of health. That's not a sign of destruction. When you're able to have healthy conflict with shared ownership, that's a really good thing. And of course, that's also true in marriage. How true that is in marriage. That's also true in relationships. It's also true in everything that you do. So the question is, do you know how to forgive other people? And I say that we don't often know how to forgive because we have been raised, I have been raised in the 70s and in the 80s where we learned a kind of therapeutic, popular view of psychological forgiveness. The, uh, therapeutic forgiveness is, is uh, one term we might give to it. It's, I'm gonna, just going to compare it to what real biblical forgiveness looks like and just think about, think about the way you view forgiveness. Therapeutic forgiveness, which comes out of the 70s and 80s and many popular books on forgiveness, defines forgiveness primarily as a feeling that it is ceasing to feel bitter or resentment about someone or something that has happened. Biblical forgiveness is a commitment to pardon the offender. Let's keep going. Therapeutic forgiveness is private and individual. It is primarily an activity that goes on within the individual's uh, uh, heart and mind. But biblical forgiveness is something that happens between two parties. Therapeutic forgiveness is unconditional. Forgiveness should be granted regardless of whether or not the offender is repentant. But biblical forgiveness is conditioned upon forgiveness. Stay with me. Therapeutic forgiveness is motivated primarily by self-interest. You should forgive others for your own sake. According to one author who is a proponent of this, every soul has a right to be free from hate, and we claim our rightful inheritance when we forgive people who hurt us unfairly, even if their intentions were pure. Now compare that to biblical forgiveness, which is motivated by a love for our neighbor and a love for God. It is for God's glory and joy, not only for our emotional comfort. Therapeutic forgiveness sees justice as non-critical. That is, about how the person feels. It doesn't judge them. According to this definition, you can legitimately choose to forgive someone who has not done you anything wrong. You could legitimately choose to forgive God if He makes you feel bad. That's not forgiveness as the Bible describes it. Biblical forgiveness views justice as the basis for forgiveness. You cannot legitimately forgive someone if he or she has not done anything wrong according to God's standards. Therapeutic forgiveness sees forgiveness as something that can happen apart from reconciliation. Biblical forgiveness is inextricably linked to reconciliation, and it provides a context for renewed relationship. Okay, in short, many of us, including me, 
when we want to forgive someone, we tend to say, well, I forgive them. I forgive them in my heart. But we actually never have any kind of communication with them. And it just kind of disappears into the ether. And we do that because we're trying to soothe our weary soul because of something horrific. For some of us, and some of us it's just something silly. But what I'm trying to help explain this morning is that that is not the way the Bible describes forgiveness. And the way the Bible describes forgiveness grates on us a little bit because the Bible makes no bones about it that forgiveness for Christians is conditional, which sounds very unchristian for me to say, doesn't it? Forgive and forget. That's therapeutic forgiveness. But biblical forgiveness could be defined like this. It is a commitment by the offended to graciously pardon their repentance from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Biblical forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to graciously pardon the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, let's break that down. Just like we did in the definition of God's forgiveness, let's break this one down as well. Christians should forgive graciously. This is how God forgives. Biblical forgiveness is freely offered. It is a gift motivated by love. We should forgive graciously. In biblical forgiveness, the forgiving person always pays the price of forgiveness because they are willing to let something go. Second, biblical forgiveness is a commitment to offer forgiveness. In other words, Christians should always have a disposition toward grace, toward those who have offended them. They should have a disposition toward grace. That is what Jesus had on the cross whenever he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We we read that text and we say, well, Jesus forgave. People who believe in the therapeutic approach to forgiveness use this as a proof text. Jesus forgave on the cross. Well, no, Jesus did not. He prayed to his Father to forgive them. But Jesus didn't extend forgiveness to those people who killed him. Because for Jesus, forgiveness is conditional, isn't it? It's conditioned upon their repentance. He prayed, Lord, would you forgive them? Sometime in the future, would you grant them forgiveness? Would you lead them to repentance? But even while he was dying, and before he knew of any repentance in the hearts of those who wronged him, he offered grace, and we are to follow that example. You are to have a disposition, or else I'll call it a little bit later, a posture toward grace in your forgiveness toward other people. Christians should view forgiveness as conditioned upon repentance. This is the one that we struggle through. Forgiveness is not automatic. If we are to forgive others as God forgives us, how does God forgive us? He forgives us on the condition of repentance. So also we should forgive others on the condition of their repentance. And when they are repentant, we who are poised and ready to graciously move toward them are quick to forgive them but it is conditioned upon their repentance. Christian forgiveness is therefore inextricably linked to reconciliation. It is restorative. 
Christian forgiveness is not emotional. It's gritty. It restores two parties that have been set at odds together. And Christians should be committed to graciously pardon the repentant from moral liability and be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Listen, forgiveness does not, of course it doesn't eliminate consequences. How do you restore the consequences of a repentant murderer that took the life of your child? You can't. There are consequences. And there are consequences for those who have committed wrongs. And some of those consequences means that justice needs to be played out in their life. And forgiveness means that there's a restoration. And one of the marks of real repentance is that you, as the one who is repentant, are willing to endure the consequences of your actions. It is actually a mark of true repentance in your life. I was on a jury trial uh, not long ago, and um, when they found out I was a minister, they, they pretty quickly dismissed me because they just assumed that this guy has no sense of, like, of justice, that he's just going to forgive. Like, they thought that I would have so much therapeutic forgiveness that it was, it was a murder trial and that I would just simply say, well, you should get off scot-free. Forgive him. It's interesting here that all of our consequences are not eliminated, are they? A willingness to accept the consequences of your actions is one of the good evidences that you're truly repentant. Now, in Luke 17, this is all throughout the Bible, I'm just going to help us think about the fact that we have much more therapeutic forgiveness in us than we may realize. But Jesus counters it. Luke 17, he says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day, turn to him seven times saying, I repent. And he turns to you and says, I repent. Then you must forgive him seven times. Not only that, but you must uh, uh, forgive him as many times as he says it and more if he's repentant. Or Matthew uh, 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. I mean, use this in your community groups this week. It's about a man who people come to him and they repent for very small sins. And yet he himself won't forgive them. And yet the God the Father in the parable has given him of everything. And this man does not forgive people of even the smallest thing when they come to repentance. And so when people are repentant, we as Christians should be able to run to them and graciously forgive them. Colossians uh, 3.13, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgive him as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Ephesians 4.23, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Don't you hear how every time we're asked to forgive, it's always conditioned upon this little phrase, as God has forgiven you. The term that Paul uses for forgiveness is, is not the same one that's found in the gospel. It is, it is a term that is infused with grace, charizomai. Charis is the Greek term for grace. You are to graciously forgive them, Paul says. People sometimes will say, well, if, if biblical forgiveness is conditioned, well then, how can we be, obey, uh, obey Christ's command to forgive if, uh, if there's not uh, any repentance? Like, how can I forgive somebody who's not repentant to me? What about those who have 
been um, sexually abused? What about those who have experienced heinous sin? How do you forgive them? The Bible calls us as Christians to have a posture toward forgiveness, toward everyone. But that does not always mean that there is a possibility of forgiveness and of reconciliation. We are commanded to have a posture of forgiveness. And I want to change the way you think about forgiveness in a sense and use God's Word to help shape our thinking about this in that when you say, oh, I forgive them, and there's no reconciliation, there's no repentance, there's no restoration of that friendship, what you really are saying is that I have a posture of forgiveness to them. I am well and ready to forgive them when they are repentant. And of course, that comes off really as boastful and proud when you say it like that, but that's what is happening here. You are willing to extend forgiveness, but when repentance comes, you're able to have the possibility of it. Does that make sense? Do you see it? So for those of us who have been abused or gone through very, very difficult things, let me just say a word to you. We are called as Christians to have a posture toward forgiveness of our offender and of our accuser. And we are to pray that the Lord will make them repentant. But friends, that day may never come. And some of you have been offended by people who have died and your day of possibility of forgiveness will come in glory if they're in Christ, and they will have the opportunity, and you will be reconciled to them, and you'll have the possibility of true forgiveness, which is an amazing thing to think about. Real harmony and restoration. But until that time, you rest in the posture of forgiveness toward others who have wronged you, and you know that your heavenly Father sings over you with His love, and He wraps you in his arms, and he cares for you in the midst of a fallen world, and he will carry you all the way home. And it is therefore more important, not less important, for there to be people in your life with whom you are processing that hurt. It is more important for you to have a counselor, not less important for you. This week, I was talking to my counselor on the phone, and we were talking about things that I was going through, and I was processing these, these issues together, and about struggles I've had for many, many years. And he brought up a very interesting point to me that I want to share with you. He said, you know, it's interesting in Scripture, isn't it, that Christians, according to Matthew chapter 5, if they realize when they are at the altar that, that, they, that somebody else has, uh, or that they've done something to harm or wrong somebody else, then you are to run to them, right? Do you remember that passage in Matthew 5, verse 23? where if you have a gift at the altar and you realize that somebody has something against you, you are to go to them. And then in Matthew chapter 18, it says, if you have been harmed by somebody else, you are to go to them. Well, which is it? Well, for the Christian, it's both. Any relationship that you have that's on thin ice, you are the one to take initiative toward reconciliation, whether you've been offended against or whether you are the one who's done the offense. You are to go on the offense and you are to move to reconciliation to them, either in repentance because you've wronged them or toward a posture of grace, working toward reconciliation with them. Now, of course, that doesn't mean, for example, in the cases of of, of uh, abuse, that, that reconciliation may frankly be wise or ever possible again. 
there are consequences for some actions. But as Christians, we are the ones who are to take the initiative. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. We are the ones who are to make the first move, either in prayer towards someone that we are not yet at the point of the possibility of forgiveness, that God would make us with a disposition to forgive, to give us a posture that's willing to forgive, or that we are to run to somebody in repentance toward the other person. How do we approach someone who has wronged us? Let me just give you a couple of practical things to remember. Matthew 18 says for us to keep the circle small if somebody has wronged us. And you what? First thing you do is you go, well, you pray. Yeah, thank you. I almost failed the test. You pray. And then you go to them. And you be gracious to them, not an ounce of revenge. And you listen. And you be prepared yourself to ask forgiveness yourself because maybe you don't have all the facts. You choose a time and a place very carefully. You choose your words very carefully. And you be very patient and you have very modest expectations at that meeting. And if necessary, if they are not um, uh, repentant or not interested or, or you feel like it, you can't go to them by yourself, then you take one or two others along with you. And you rinse and repeat. You don't go in with an ounce of revenge. You listen more than you speak. You make sure you have all the facts. You be prepared to offer forgiveness or ask forgiveness yourself. And you have modest expectations. Great hopes, but modest expectations. And then if that fails, then you tell it to the elders of the church. And that's why the session exists. But notice, you don't come to the session to tell us first if you haven't already practiced the principles of Matthew chapter 18. And Ken Sandy uh, summarizes the four promises that Christians are to make to each other when they forgive one another. Here are the four. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. When you forgive somebody, you're promising them, I will not dwell on this incident. Remember, this is in a perfect scenario when there's repentance and there's forgiveness therefore granted. I will not dwell on this incident if I've forgiven someone. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again or use it against you. Just like God the Father. Though they are crimson, they shall be made white as snow as far as the east is from the west. I won't dwell on the incident. I won't bring up the incident again or use it against you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. What about how we approach people who we have wronged? Well, as Christians, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, you go. And you use the right words, and you get counsel before you go if you need to talk it out with somebody on how you'd approach it. And if you're a child, you might want to say, I'm sorry for this specific sin. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? An adult should say something like this, I'm sorry for this specific sin. I was wrong. 
will you forgive me? In staff meeting this week, I was telling the staff how we, Lauren and I have trained our kids to ask forgiveness. And we, without um, intending to, have like slipped into this kind of therapeutic forgiveness because after so long, it just becomes so exhausting to say it again and again and again. And so we just said, just listen, apologize to your brother. I'm sorry. Say you forgive him. I forgive him. Okay, great. You're good. Let's go. You know? and, and, and Scott said, well, what I do with my kids is I actually say, I'm sorry. And we make them say the specific sin they've committed against. And I thought, that's so good. It just takes so much more work. And, but it's so good to do that. I'm sorry. And to, to try to be as specific as you can to train our children and how they sinned against one another. Because, and we should model that too, because they will pick up on it in our own life and to help them recognize that it's not some kind of therapeutic, oh, I'm sorry, now we're good. But listen, I'm sorry that I thought I was more important than you. I'm sorry that I thought that I own that toy and that I think I'm special. And therefore, I punched you in the nose or whatever it happens to be. And for all of us who are repentant here this morning, brothers and sisters, I just want to hear you. I just want to let you hear again what Jesus says over you. If you are broken by your sin, that your Savior loves you, He clears you of all wrongdoing because of His work for you. That doesn't mean that the consequences are eliminated, but He says over you, I will not dwell on this incident anymore. Jesus says, I will not bring up this incident again or ever use it against you. At the Father's right hand, you're going to go to Jesus and you're going to have all this stuff that's Jesus that you know that he knows and Jesus is not going to say anything next to his father when, he, when, he, when you're there. He's just going to say, oh, Father, he comes covered in my righteousness. Jesus will not talk to others about this incident. And Jesus will not let this incident stand between you or hinder your personal relationship with him. So, friends, run and be reconciled to him. You want to learn how to forgive each other? You first have to be reconciled to your Savior. And so this morning as we come to the table, would you please take time to pray and to move toward Christ in repentance and allow him to say these four things over you. I won't dwell on the incident again. I will not bring this incident up again. I will not talk to others about it. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our relationship. And then come to the table and be empowered by the means of grace to then go out and have a posture of forgiveness toward all people. And where possible, where the condition of repentance is possible, be willing to graciously forgive. Though, of course, we know that not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Can we do that? Can we be a church that thinks biblically about forgiveness, that practices it together so that we don't live in this world of false harmony or of negative conflict, but we live right in the middle the third way that says we have conflict together, we love each other, we trust each other, we own the vision together, and therefore we know we're going to step over the line, and when we do, we are quick to run in repentance, and we are quick to offer forgiveness when necessary. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Let's do that together this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your son who hungered, and yet he fed thousands. He thirsted, but yet he cried, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He was wearied, but Jesus, you yourself were the rest that the weary and heavy laden run to. Oh, Father, thank you that we pray to you, and yet you hear our prayers. Thank you, Jesus, 
that you yourself weep, and yet, Father, you dry all of our tears. Lord, thank you that you know every wrong we've ever done to another person. And Father, thank you that you forgive us of those things. And Lord, let that not merely be a therapeutic kind of forgiveness in our own understanding, but help us, Lord, when we have the opportunity to pursue another brother we've wronged, help us to do it. Help us with a good conscience to not dodge people around town. Help us to have the audacity to repent and to ask forgiveness. Father, would you do this for your namesake and for the purity of your church and for the glory of your Father's kingdom? And would you start in me? Would you start in Pastor Scott? Would you start in the elders and the deacons and every person in this church? Would you make us people who have a posture of forgiveness toward the world? Thank you, Father. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.